Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Isaiah chapter 50. And uh, just before we begin, let me say hello to those watching online. We love you and miss you. Looking forward to your return to our meeting together. Well, the senior pastor of the church I grew up in sometimes told the same stories over again. He often told the same stories, but it's good. Repetition is often how you learn the point of a story, right? So one story he told occasionally was about when his children were little. One of the kids scraped a knee or got hurt somehow, and he picked them up and put his son on his lap and comforted him. The wailing settled into crying and then quieted the sniffles and then finally peace. And when his son came off his lap and re-engaged his siblings, his sister said to him, See, I told you. Why do older sisters always say that? I told you, daddy's lap heals. Daddy's lap heals. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it? Children should find comfort in their fathers and mothers, and when they do find that comfort, we see the goodness of that relationship, and we can see that that's how God is with us. When we need comfort as God's children, we know where to go, right? We go to the Lord. We go to Him. His presence brings us to a place of peace. In Him, we know that all will work out right, work out for the good He takes away our pain. He delights us in who He is. We find solace, consolation. We find relief. But it doesn't always seem that simple, does it? Usually when we need comfort, we need it for something that's not easily solved. At least to our minds, it's not easily solved. The things that trouble us seem to lie outside of our power or our knowledge to solve. Whatever worries us, can be difficult to interpret, difficult to get a proper sense of, or even to simply create or form clear thoughts about. And so it can seem insurmountable. And on top of that, our confusion. How about you? How about today? How about now? Are you in need of comfort? Are you looking at something in your life and saying, Yes, I could use some relief. I could use some comfort. My guess is that everyone in this room needs it to some degree, even right now. And the great news is this. God loves. He loves to comfort His people. God has provided comfort for His people. He does not withhold comfort from His people. God's not withholding comfort from you. Whatever He's called you to, He's also going to provide comfort so that you can be comforted with the comfort that God gives. God has comforted us. He is comforting us. He will comfort us. He will comfort you today. And He has provided His comfort for us in the most gracious and most glorious way. He sent His own Son into this world. Now, we've been in our Isaiah series entitled Hope Through Judgment. And this is all written about, Isaiah is written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And in our passage today, we're going to come to the third of four of the famous 
servant songs. This is the third one we're going to see today. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. This is the third one. God keeps telling his people through the prophet Isaiah that he will send a servant. And he describes that servant, telling his people the benefits that his servant will bring. And of course, we now have the advantage of looking back and knowing who that servant is. Knowing who this prophecy is about. 700 years before he comes, it's written down. It's about Jesus of Nazareth, who is our Savior. But, reading what was prophesied about our Lord so long before reveals to us, even us living at this time, even with the advantage of looking back, it reveals to us with even greater clarity what our Lord is like. How beautiful, how precious, how sweet, how glorious. Reveals with even greater clarity who He is. And it reveals with even greater clarity, as God intended it from the beginning in this prophecy, that it would comfort His people. So let's sum it up simply. Let's sum it up simply like this. Take comfort. God has sent His servant. Take comfort. God has sent His servant. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask and answer three questions from our text to try to help us take comfort in the servant that God has sent. And so that first question is simply, what is the servant like? What's the servant like? What's he like? What are his characteristics? What's his nature? What can we expect from his behavior? What's he like? Well, first we see that he's highly sensitive. The servant of the Lord is highly sensitive to the Word of God. He's more sensitive to the Word of God than to any other word. He's more sensitive to the Word of God than to any feeling. He's more sensitive to the Word of God than any situation or anything that's happening in the world on a geopolitical, global scale, regional scale, or whether it's local or whether it's personal, whether it's even private. The servant of the Lord is more sensitive to the Word of God than to any other thing. Let me put it up here on the screen for you. The first couple of verses, Isaiah 54 to 5. You can keep your Bible open because we're going to go there at various points for longer portions. Let me read this to you. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This right here is the servant speaking. That I may know how to sustain with the Word. Him who is weary... Morning by morning, He awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. You see, He's listening so intently to God that God is waking Him up every morning with His Word. He's waking up, hearing the Word of God. And He includes Himself among those who are taught. You see that phrase up there? Those who are taught. In other words, he himself, the servant of the Lord, is subject to the word of the Lord. He's subject to God's word. Think of a group of students that are eager to learn. You know, not like any given classroom where half or even more than half of the students don't want to be there to begin with, but instead these are eager students. They want to be there. And he's there. The servant of the Lord is there. Leaning forward, taking in every detail, not missing a thing, ready to apply. And God's word to him is not simply knowledge. 
God's Word is not simply knowledge. It's, it's truth. It is to be obeyed. It's to be responded to, to be submitted to, to be embraced wholly. Think of that. It comes to you. You embrace it completely. It comes to you. You sit under it. It has authority over you. And that's how the servant of the Lord is interacting with the Word of God. And that's what he's like. He's super attentive to the Word of God. It's the most important interpretive grid for him. It is the direction for his life. It is the revelation of the will of God for him. It is the the direction he will walk in. He will not stray from it. It guides his every step. That's how sensitive he is to it. This is the opposite, of course, of what the people of Israel are like. Remember that at times the term servant is used of the entire people of Israel. And we'll call them the lowercase s servant. So if you could think of it that way, the lowercase s servant would, would be indicative of, of all the people of Israel. And the uppercase s servant would be indicative of God's special servant who we know to be Jesus, the Savior of the world. Well, the lowercase servant, God's people of Israel, they were constantly disobeying. It's why they were in trouble. It's why they had been exiled to Babylon. It's why they needed comfort because of their own sin. They were disobeying. What were they disobeying? They were disobeying God's Word. They weren't sensitive to it. They didn't respond to it. They didn't orient their lives to it. They didn't sit under it. They didn't embrace it. And they got an incredible amount of trouble for it. They found a road of destruction. Because unlike the servant of the Lord, they were rebellious. They did turn backward from it. And so when God, God sends the servant, we learn that that servant is uber aware of God's Word. And that's a great relief, isn't it? Finally, Someone who is truly faithful. He's so faithful that even when he's facing death, face, facing death on the cross, and he's asking, even at this moment, he sees God's will, it's crucifixion, it's death, it's torment, it's, it's humiliation. Even in this moment, he's asking, Father, if it's possible, take this away from me. Even in that moment, he is quick to say, But not my will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. That is how faithful the servant is to the Word of God. And that alone is a comfort, isn't it? Such a comfort. God's ancient people did not faithfully keep the Word of God. They weren't sensitive to it. You know, let's let's be honest. Many times you and I are not sensitive to the Word of God like we ought to be. We don't sit under it. We don't embrace it. Sometimes we turn our back on it. And when we do, what do we find? We find the path of destruction and consequence. But oh, praise God, there's someone who was faithful from first to last, not only so that we can receive the mercy of God through that faithfulness, but we can learn to be faithful to it as well. Let's take it to another step of application for us. Where do people, where do we, where do people, where do we 
get our ideas in this world? Where do we get ideas of what our values ought to be? What's moral and what's not moral? What's right and what's wrong? Well, we know we're supposed to get it from God's Word. But unfortunately, even in the church, those ideas, even Christians, I dare say, that's a fun word, isn't it? Dare say. I dare to say that I think the media has to be the greatest shaping influence in our world. I mean, I hate to say it. Maybe it's not quite right. Maybe for some they claim it's science. Oh, I'm ju- I just follow the science. Well, there's been a lot of inconsistency on that front. Maybe others claim it's education. I'm a rational being. And I trust primarily my own ability to reason because of the knowledge I have received. Maybe others claim it's some great thinker from the past or even in the present. They've got it all together, so I will follow their line of thinking. There's a dangerous proposition. But I can't get away from actually thinking that the sorry truth of the matter is that many of us are far more influenced by media, news media, what people are yapping about, sports media, what people are are valuing in sports. What's a good sport? What's a bad sport? What matters in sports? What doesn't matter in sports? Entertainment media. What's, What's positioned as glorious and good and beautiful on the big screen or on the little screen of my laptop? God help us, dear friends. God help us. It's tragic. It's fraught with problems. It has a catastrophic end awaiting anyone who gets their worldview from anything other than the Word of God. This must not be among the church. So here's a test for us. Here's a test for us. When you watch a movie, I'm not saying don't watch movies. When you read a novel, when you watch the news, when you watch sports, When you engage science, when you engage medicine, when you engage education, when you listen to the claims of a great thinker, are you able to filter that and interpret it properly by the only interpretive grid that matters in the world, the Word of God? If you're incapable of that, it is time to grow. And the truth is, all of us lack competence in this in some way or another, so let all of us follow and trust the grace of the great servant and become sensitive to the Word of God. Can you see that if the servant is so very inclined to the Word of God that we must be humble, faithful, urgent students of His Word too? We must. It must come first. It must be the absolute proposition for our direction in life. But notice this too. Because the servant is so inclined to God's Word, he is an able, powerful minister. Because he's so inclined to God's Word, he can minister effectively. Think about it. The beginning of verse 4 says this, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word, him who is weary. Oh, think about that. 
with my words. I, I have I've been taught by God and, and now because of that teaching, with my words I can uplift, I can encourage, I can put courage into, I can put life into, I can strengthen the weary. I can serve, I can minister with what God has taught me through my words. That reminds us of something we read about God not too long ago in Isaiah. And here it is. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Lord, the servant of God, the great servant, he's being likened to this. He's the arm of God to do this, to strengthen the weary. Now, it's true for us, too, that when we follow the example of the servant, when we access the grace of the servant, we also become able ministers, able to comfort those in need. Never underestimate the power of an apt word from, from, that comes through the Lord, comes from the Lord through us, because an apt word belongs to the Lord. But even while we desire this good ability and even while we ought to minister in it, let's continue to put the emphasis where it belongs. Jesus is the one who does this for us. The great servant does this literally for us. He sustains us with a word, a word of His love for us, a word of His faithfulness to us, a word of His faithfulness to God, a word of His nearness, His presence that He will never leave us, not to the end of the age, a word of His victory over death and sin and so on and so forth. He comforts us no matter what we are facing at any given time. Well, what else is the servant of the Lord like? Well, we learn a bit more here that his ministry will include suffering. His ministry will include suffering. We learn, we got a hint of of his suffering. We learned a little bit about it in the first servant song back in Isaiah chapter 42. So back in Isaiah 42, we heard a little bit that this servant is going to be amazing, but he's going to suffer. Just a little bit. And then we got a little more info in the second servant song in chapter 49. And now we get a little bit more in this third servant song here in chapter 50. So you can see it's progressive revelation. We're learning about the great servant of God who's going to come, comfort all of us. But part of his comfort is going to be suffering. We're going to get far more info in the fourth servant song that we're going to look at in two weeks. But let's see what is revealed to us here in chapter 50. So take your Bible and look at verses 6 through 9. Chapter 50, verses 6 through 9. And I'll read these for you. I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And we can see from verse 6... 
that the servant will have his back struck. That indicates lashes. People will pull out his beard, which is excruciating. In other words, this will not be some civilized form of execution that's going to happen to the servant. Humiliation, the increase of pain and shame, will be a major part of his experience 700 years later. And verse 6 tells us that he will be spit on. And these all, of course, the back being struck, the pulling out of his beard, the spitting, the humiliation, they all happen to Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. But in verse 7, the servant says, I know, I know that I shall not be put to shame. I know that I shall not be put to shame. Well, pardon me, but that seems like a bit of shame right there, doesn't it? You know, the lashes and the pulling out of a beard and getting spit on and and being humiliated. Seems like a huge truckload of shame, right? But then the servant says, I shall not be put to shame. What's going on here? Well, in the ultimate sense, you're only put to shame if you're wrong in the end. If you're wrong in the end. If you're wrong ultimately. If what you trusted in fails finally, fully, never to rise again. Only then are you put to shame. Years ago, someone showed me a compilation video of people and or teams. It was a mixture that, that they thought they won, the individual or the team. They thought they won and they began to celebrate And they started celebrating too early because at the final millisecond, the other team or individual pulled out a shocking, stunning, silencing victory. Changed it all. And that, by the way, is the Christian life. It is the resurrection of Christ. It's one of the reasons why those moments are so amazing because they illustrate the ultimate victory from the jaws of death right? The devil thought he had won. He thought it was over. The religious and political rulers thought that they had won in the death of Christ Jesus, that it was over. Jesus of Nazareth is gone. And on the way out, they had shamed him as fully as they possibly could. No one would possibly want to follow this man or make a martyr out of him. They whipped him. They insulted him. They pulled out his beard. They hung him. They shamed him as much as they possibly could have. They actually hung him on a tree or a cross which the Mosaic law says that anyone hung on a tree is cursed. It was over. They won, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. They hadn't won a thing. He's alive. He won. He ascended. He's waiting. And those that oppose Him are in big trouble. He's not been put to shame. They've been put to shame. And that is why he sets his face like a flint, a rock so hard that it's used to sharpen other instruments or to start fires. He is unmoved because he, because the Lord knows, he knows that he will be victorious. He has been, he is, and he will be. Do we, we, as the servants of the Lord, do we know that too? Do we know that too, that? This victory is won. Do we have that assurance? Are we as steadfast? Praise Him that He is steadfast. Well, take comfort, dear friend, because God has sent His servant. Let's ask that second question. Who is the servant? Who is the servant? Well, we've seen throughout Isaiah 
that God keeps giving us hints that he's going to do something very special in his servant, in his special servant. We keep getting hints that the nature of this servant is different somehow, that he's more than a man, that he's somehow divine. We got a hint way back when Isaiah prophesied about the child to be named. Remember that? The child's name was to be Emmanuel, which means what? It means God with us. And we got hints in other places, including the first two servant songs that we looked at already. Well, here in verses 10 to 11, we get it again. Let me read it for you. I'll put it up on the screen. Here's verses 10 to 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. I think it might take a couple of readings through to kind of get the gist of what's going on here. So the first sentence here is actually Hebrew poetry. It's actually Hebrew poetry. And usually in Hebrew poetry, when you have a sentence, it usually is two phrases. And we see a lot of this in the Old Testament. And a sentence will be made up of those two phrases. And the phrases are essentially synonymous. They basically mean the same thing said in a different way. So you get you get aspects of it or facets of it, and it becomes a powerful way to emphasize a point in an interesting and beautiful manner. And so here we have in that first sentence, who among you fears the Lord and, second part of that sentence, second phrase, obeys the voice of his servant? Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The Lord here You can see it's in all caps, right? You see that's in all caps? Let me make sure I got that. Okay, good. All caps. That means the Hebrew word behind it is Yahweh. This word translated into English is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's a tough uh, word to, to interpret, to translate. It is the special name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. We usually translate it as Lord in English. But when you see it in all caps, you can be certain that it is referring to that Word. And it's not referring to an earthly Lord, you know that immediately, not referring to a king or a noble, but referring to God Himself, the Lord. And so we know from many passages that to fear the Lord is to obey and reverence the Lord or God. And here the voice of His servant is to be obeyed. And Obeying the voice of his servant is equated to fearing the Lord. You see how those two phrases are synonymous? So they have essentially synonymous meaning. Therefore, to fear the Lord is to obey the servant. And so do you see that the servant is being elevated to the place of the Lord, all caps, or God? And there it is again, another hint that the servant is something more than a man. Therefore, this servant will bring light to you, to those walking in darkness. So rather than stumbling around because you cannot see, look to the servant who will light your path. And that's rather comforting, isn't it? That's why when Matthew wrote about Jesus beginning his ministry, he quotes Isaiah chapter 9. This is Matthew chapter 4. Look what he quotes from Isaiah. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the quote. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness 
have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned from that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the light that the people saw. He's the light being spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 50. Just consider for a moment, my brothers and sisters, my friends, consider for a moment that God became man. I know that we've contemplated contemplated this before, but it's always worth doing this again. It's one of those those infinite mysteries that we grasp to some degree and it amazes us and positions us for grace again. And we can never exhaust the reality of it. God becoming man. When you think of it, the measure of humility for God to become man, it is staggering. God become man. It's scandalous, really. It's why Islam will not abide the concept. They hear that and it it angers them. They gnash their teeth at it because it's too belittling to God. How can you say that God became man? That's blasphemy to say such a thing. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's part of the foolishness of the gospel. It's part of why grace is so gracious. It's part of why we have comfort that keeps us steady in every trial and every evil, no matter how fierce. Because God, who stands above His creation, enters His creation as part of creation. Would you or I do that? Now think about that for a moment. You and I make a mess. We don't even want to clean it up. You know how you start a project, you're so enthusiastic. Maybe in the kitchen, you want to try a new recipe. Or you're going to do a project around the house and you get started. You're all excited to get started. And you use your energies and efforts to, to do that recipe or, or to do that project. And, 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 and you use your energy and effort and maybe it doesn't turn out the way you want it. And you're like, ah, oh, this is a mess. And, and then there's this huge mess. And at the, end of your, the, at the end of your using up your energy, everything has to be cleaned up. You and I, in our efforts to reflect the Creator and be creative by recreating with what He's created. We try to do that and we make a mess and we don't even want to clean it up. Let alone God who made it all, created it out of nothing and then enters it, becoming a part of it so that He can love those of us who are in it. That is staggering grace. That is shocking humility. It's spectacular love. God, in His great love, sends His own Son into the world. The Creator taking on the nature of the creation to come alongside of us and to comfort us. There is no greater comfort, my dear friend, than Jesus coming as a man, dying for us and rising for us. Do you obey the voice of the servant? If you do, when you do, when you do, you'll be comforted with the comfort that God gives to His servant. Given the extravagant humility and grace our Lord has shown, no wonder the penalty for for rejecting Him is so stiff. And I'll put this up on the screen again, verses... 10 and 11. Look again at this passage. See in the middle where it says, Behold. I'll start there. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, 
Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Do you see what the servant is saying here? Do you see what he's getting at? He's saying, he's saying if you reject the servant's light, if you reject the light that God sends, the, that God become man, the God-man, if you reject the Savior of the world and you try to walk by your own light, you will come to destruction. Think about that. Think about what I'm saying. I am prophesying. I am predicting I am proclaiming, I am exhorting, I am admonishing right now that if you walk by any other light than the light of Christ, you will come to destruction. I do not prophesy or proclaim that on my own. I stand on the authority of the Word of God that you can see right here. He's, he's, he's likening it to you light your own fire. You're going to be consumed by your own fire. You're going to be burned up from your own fire. You're going to be in torment in your own fire. Do not reject the servant. Given his condescension, given his humility, given his great love, it is the highest criminal act to reject him and walk by your own light. Don't reject the servant, but see the gift that he is. Take comfort, dear friend. God has sent his servant. And that brings us to our last question. How does the servant comfort? How does the servant comfort? I probably should have written here, how does the servant comfort us? How does he comfort us? Because it's important to understand that here in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 51, God is not including everyone in who he's going to comfort. Who, therefore, will he comfort? Well, he comforts us. So let me read for you verses 1 to 3. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 to 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. So this comfort is addressed to those who pursue righteousness. And that certainly doesn't include everyone, right? Not everyone pursues righteousness. Even some of us need to turn today and repent and to begin to pursue righteousness, to begin to pursue the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, Savior of the world. And so what's he talking about? Well, I think he's, what he's talking about here, those that pursue righteousness, it's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Galatians. Let me put up verses 7 to 9 of chapter 3 for us. Know then that, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Remember, Abraham, when he was called, when God called him, he was just, just one man. He, he didn't have a, a family. He didn't have a big family. 
That came much later. In fact, for many years, he didn't even have one son. And so, finally, God gives him a son. But, but what the Scripture teaches us as we learn, it is not those of biological descent that are the sons of Abraham. It is all those of faith. Faith what? Faith in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what Isaiah is speaking of. That's what the servant is speaking of when he talks about those that, will, that are seeking righteousness. It's those that trust the Lord Jesus, those of faith. Remember, the righteous shall live by faith. They'll be saved or be justified. They will do so through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So God's comfort is reserved for those who trust Him. Specifically those who trust in the Son to save us. Because outside of Him there is no comfort. Now hear me today. If you have not yet trusted Christ Jesus the Savior, there is no true comfort. There's momentary comfort. There's temporary comfort. You know, there's temporary comfort in a box of ice cream. There's temporary comfort in a hamburger. Is that what we're looking for? Good answer. Amen. There's, there's comfort in loving relationships. But relationships change and disappoint. People die. There's many temporary comforts, but there is no real, lasting, eternal comfort outside of Christ Jesus. And so if you have not yet trusted Him today, what are you waiting for? You know that your soul longs for the comfort of God that only comes in Christ Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust the servant who gave up his life for you. Be baptized in his name. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And know the comfort of God for all time. Let's look at the next portion. And we'll just go through these next two portions briefly so that we get through the whole portion. Isaiah chapter 51, verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. Look what it says here. Give attention to me, my people, give, and, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. You remember when we talked about, we talked about uh, Israel being in exile in Babylon and, and coming back. And even last week we talked about the idea that God might restore them to the land. But will God really restore them to Himself? Will He fix their relationship with Him? I mean, they can come back to the land, right? That's historic. That's a miracle. God has to do it from His grace and what great provision. But the truth is their greatest problem is their broken relationship with the God of Israel. And so part of this is like, okay, God, will you really, can you, would you forgive our sin? 
restore us in perfect, beautiful, loving relationship with you? Will that really happen? Could you? Would you? That's part of what's this anticipation that's building for us in these chapters here in Isaiah 4. It's this anticipation that where God's holding out and says, yes, I will. I will forgive you to the uttermost. I will forgive you completely. And at first we don't know how. Now we begin to see it's going to be by his arm. You get this metaphor of the arm here in this passage. What's God's arm? It's his servant. That's how God will reach out. That's how God will save. That's how God will restore his people and forgive our sin. It's not just that God will give us a long, happy life here on earth. That's, that's, that's good. That's a blessing. But that's not really the point. The point is to have an eternal comfort that God alone can give through the sacrifice of His own Son who will die for sin so that our sins can be forgiven. Forgiven to the uttermost. And you and I can walk with God unashamed, confident in His love for us because of what the Son has done for us. We can walk with Him. That's what God's comfort is. So no matter what evil we may face, no matter what suffering we may face, like our Lord, the suffering servant, that we're going to learn more about His suffering in the days to come. He too had to suffer. We're going to see that. But even no matter what evil we may face, what, what, even what consequences we may face because of our own sin, and getting all tangled up into it like Israel did. God has provided for our forgiveness so that the ultimate comfort from God can come to us and we can live confident. So, so what bothers you today? What, what is under your skin? What gives you anxiety? What do you fear? Where do you need comfort? Have you Christ Jesus? then you have all the comfort you need and continue to trust Him because He's with you and He loves you and He's taken your sin away and you stand justified before God. And when you have that, you have all. You have all. Finally, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 7 to 8 Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 51, verses 7 to 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. I want to ask Tyler to come. I'm sorry, brother. I know his name. I, there he is. I, I kept wanting to say Taylor, and it's, it's not Taylor. <laughs> he said, no problem, Steve. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Tyler. Very gracious. Back to the Scriptures. Look at this comfort. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, you will be reproached for righteousness. Those who love righteousness, those who pursue righteousness, you will be reproached for it. Think of, think of Moses. Think of Job. 
Think of Joseph. Think of Jesus. Think of Peter. Think of Paul. Think of John the Baptist. Think of James and John. Now think of us. You stand for righteousness in this world, you will be reproached. The comfort that the Lord gives is not the removal of any reproach of all people. You see, this is, this is what we need to ask ourselves. What does it mean to trust the Lord? What does it mean to trust the servant? I think when it's tested, we learn. Sometimes our, our whole idea of this comes up way short. We think that trusting the Lord means um, give Him praise when everything's going great. And that's certainly true, right? But it's far from the whole thing. You see, it's, uh, it's being steadfast when you're reproached. It's standing firm when evil blares against you. It's, it's admitting fault and confessing sin when we sin. It's humbling ourselves to the foot of the cross again and again. That's the pursuit of righteousness. That's the trusting of the Lord. It's when we face consequences for our sin that we, we say, yes, Lord, please forgive me again. Please forgive me. It's humbling ourselves. It's standing firm. It's being steadfast. It's, it's trusting Him to the end. Because if you live righteously, if you pursue righteousness, if when you turn from sin, when you, when you sin, you turn from sin, you're pursuing righteousness. When the world calls you to sin, you, you turn from that. You say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand firm. You're, you're pursuing righteousness. When you gather together here in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're pursuing righteousness. When you pursue righteousness, you're going to face revilings in this world. But don't be dismayed at the reproach of man. Do you see what it's likened to? It's likened to a piece of cloth that... You know, if left alone, if, if, if not taken care of, it would disintegrate in a matter of, well, a short, a short period of time. It would be gone. Maybe even eaten by moths. A, a little bug can destroy this. Time will certainly destroy it. That's what their revilings are like. They have no power. They have no sustainability. They're not steadfast. They're going to be swept away in a moment, just like Jesus in His resurrection. But His righteousness is forever and His salvation to all generations. Every bit of suffering you face, oh, it's well worth it. Well worth it. Because His salvation is forever. And His comfort is for now and forever. Take comfort, my dear friends. God has sent his servant. Would you stand with us, please, and let's sing our thanksgiving, our response to the Lord for his comfort. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.